friends, because Jesus is alive and because he stood before the wrath of God and shielded sinners with his blood. We gather this morning with hope and confidence that we will, in fact, be with God forever in spite of the fact that we all, every one of us, are sinners. I pray that you feel that this morning, and I pray that as we look to the Bible now, the Lord will continue to work in our minds and hearts and continue to give us faith in the Lord Jesus, continue to give us hope completely in Him, and continue to fill us with love and gratitude toward God for what He has done for us in Christ. And so friends, now before we look to the Word of God, join me in prayer as we ask God for His help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, and we are not. We, in and of ourselves, don't deserve anything good from you. And yet, because you are a good and merciful and gracious and loving God, you pour out goodness on us, and we're grateful. We pray, Lord, now as we look to the Bible, as we look to your word that you have given us, we pray that you would help us now. We pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I might be helpful to these dear people. And we pray for all of us, Father, that you would pour your spirit out on us so that we might have eyes to see the truth and ears to hear it and hearts that would love it and rejoice over it. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you and praise you for your plan of redemption that is accomplished by him. And Lord Jesus, we thank you very personally for dying for us and for shielding us from the wrath of God that we deserve. Be with us now, Lord, and empower us and bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't make it a, a habit to talk to you about my my social media stuff very much. But this week I did tweet this. This is a quote. It's a play on a, a, an old quote from a pastor who lived hundreds of years ago. But I tweeted this. I preach as a struggling sinner to struggling sinners. I'll say that again. I preach as a struggling sinner to struggling sinners. My point in Tweeting that this week was about my posture as a, a preacher, certainly, and just my understanding of who I am before the Lord and who my congregation is before God, and that we are all sinners worthy of God's wrath, and we all are still fighting with and battling with indwelling sin. My point in bringing it up this morning is that latter piece. It's not so much about me as a preacher. But it's about that reality that every human being that I'm looking at right now is a struggling sinner. Every one of us, many in this room, as I look out over the congregation, many in this room, by God's grace, have been born again, have been given life when we were dead, have been converted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have had that happen to us. God has done that. And our lives are changing really change. They're transformed. And at the same time, we still struggle with sin. This is that battle that Paul writes about so famously in Romans chapter 7. That our spirit, in our spirit, the renewed, regenerated part of us wants to please God, wants to avoid sin, and yet there is this force within us, this indwelling sin within us that wages war against our spirit so that at times we find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do and we find ourselves not doing things that we know we should do and that we want to do. That is, in one sense, the plight of fallen men this side of heaven, even regenerate men and women. God, in His Word, has given us His law. God has revealed His standard in terms of our living and our conduct. And it's perfect. And God has revealed in His Word that there is punishment, there is judgment that comes for people 
who break his law. Lawbreakers are punished. He will by no means clear the guilty. And so if you are a sinner, which you are, and if I am a sinner, which I most certainly am, then how in the world can we ever be reconciled to God? We're talking about this question of justification. How can we be justified as sinful people in the sight of the holy living God? How? We're talking about how can we be declared righteous by God so that God is good with us and we are good with Him. And when we are talking about this justification question, friends, we're talking about nothing less than salvation. To be justified by God today means that we are being sanctified and we will be glorified. We are talking about how sinners can be saved from the judgment that we all deserve. How can we get God forever in the new heavens, in the new earth, in an existence that's perfect without sin, full of pleasure forevermore, where we can see God as He is and we will be with Him and He will be our God and we will be His people? How in the world can that happen? And so, yes, I realize that that I've set this tension up for us more than one time in this book of Galatians as we've been making our way through it. And we are going to consider again today these realities, this most important question. There's no question in the world more important than this. This is worth your life and mine to contemplate this question. And so I pray that it would be driven into our hearts. The answer to this question would be driven into our hearts and minds in such a way that we would never forget it. And that we would never be confused as to how we are justified before God and that we would never be confused as to how we're finally saved. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 5. If you've come here today without a Bible, that's no big deal at all. We will be putting the verses on the screen for you. We're only going to be looking at two verses today from the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, verses 2 and 3. So we're going to look at what Paul has to say in those verses. They're very straightforward. They're very strong in their language. We'll wrestle with that for a moment. And then we're going to try to get underneath it and understand why is Paul saying these things. But before we do that, I want to read the verses for us. So if you'll put your eyes on Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2. This is the word of God. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. And so now the first thing I want us to do together is to consider basically Paul's point, which I would put under this heading, all or nothing, all or nothing. That's the title of the sermon. It's motivated by these two verses, all or nothing. What do we mean by that? Let's put our eyes on the text. Look at verse two. That look, it might have a colon after it in your text. It ought to have an exclamation point. This is an interjection. This is Paul has been arguing now, and it's basically like if I were having a conversation with you and I was giving you reasons for why we are justified completely by faith in Christ apart from works of the law, I've said these things, and it's like, look, here's the deal. We're going to make this definitive statement, this summary statement that's powerful. And here we go. Look, I, Paul, he says, say to you that if you accept circumcision, you can insert any work of the law there. If you accept any work of the law, as meritorious, right, as earning merit before God, and you accept circumcision, any work of the law, as being required for justification, then Jesus is of, of, excuse me, no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision or any work of the law as earning you merit before God or as being necessary for salvation, Jesus is of no advantage to you. It's important that we remember, friends, in the midst of even this sermon today, certainly as we made our way through the letter, we have been reminding ourselves of what Paul is arguing. And in particular, the false gospel that he is arguing against. It matters. The Bible can only be rightly understood in context. So the context of this letter is that there were false teachers in the Galatian churches that were telling the Galatian believers, who were Gentiles, 
They were telling them that, look, alongside faith in Christ, you've got to have works of the law. In particular, alongside faith in Christ, you've got to be circumcised. Or you will not be saved. You will not be justified in God's sight. Circumcision is necessary if you are going to be declared righteous. Circumcision was being taught as a requirement, in other words, for justification. And I've pointed this out a few times, but it's important that this would be clear to us. That it's not that these false teachers were denying Jesus altogether. They were not doing it. They were not telling the Galatian Christians, just set Christ aside altogether. Not at all what they were saying. But what they did, perhaps more subtly, is to divide up the work of salvation. We're going to parse it out. We're going to divide up the work in salvation. Jesus has done a part of it, maybe even most of it, maybe even almost all of it. But he hasn't done it all. In that, there is still work that you need to do in order to be right with God. There is work of the law that you need to add to what Christ has done in order to make salvation a reality for you. That was the false gospel. Trust Christ, yes, but you better be circumcised. Trust Christ, yes, but you better have works of the law. You better do works of the law in order to be reconciled to God which Paul has been arguing against for four chapters now. That no, we are justified completely by faith in Jesus Christ apart from any works. And this is because, friends, as Paul is making very clear in verse 2, that Jesus is no half Savior. Jesus is no half Savior. He is a perfect Savior. He is a whole and complete Savior. He is either to be trusted completely like with everything that you've got, I'm relying completely and solely on Jesus and nothing else or Christ is of no profit to you. It is either Christ's merit or your merit. It is either the grace of God in Christ received by faith or it is by works of the law that a person is justified. It is an either-or proposition. The grace of Christ and the merit of works cannot be blended together. Full stop. That's what Paul is arguing. If you wish to attribute any portion of justification to works of the law, to your obedience, then Jesus is of zero use to you. Let's put our eyes on verse 3. I testify again to every man, every person who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Again, his point is, I'm testifying to everybody, and in this case, male or female, anybody who is wanting to uphold a work of the law as necessary for justification, that you are then obligated to keep the entire law. It's again very straightforward. This makes sense. If you are aiming to keep any aspect of the law in a meritorious way, then you're cut off from Jesus. You are standing not in the grace of God, not in the merit of Christ, but you're standing in your own merit, apart from the grace of Christ. And you are seeking to be justified by law-keeping. And again, friends, it cannot be overstated. This is not a both-and proposition. There's no tension here. None. It is one or the other. It is all or nothing. It is Jesus or it is you. It is Christ's work, Christ's merit, or it is your work and your merit. You'll stand before God in one of them. You will not stand before God with some blend, some mixture of the two. That's not how this goes. That's Paul's point. It's very clear. So what I want to do, friends, with the time that we have Remaining is considering these truths that have been kind of in our faces over and over and over again throughout this letter. It's all or nothing. It's Christ or nothing. It's Christ's work or your work. There's no room for law keeping when it comes to justification. I want us to try to get underneath that. I want us to maybe zoom out a little bit and think, okay, Paul, why are you saying that? Why are you arguing that, that there's no place for law-keeping, that it's completely, justification that is, is completely realized 
through faith alone in Christ alone. Let's get underneath it. I'm going to give you sort of three getting underneath it, zooming out kind of reasons behind Paul's theology. So this is reason number one. Why are you talking like this, Paul? Where's this coming from? So this is high level. Reason number one is because of the point of the Bible. Reason number one is because of the point of the Bible. What I mean by saying that is the million dollar question, what's the Bible about? What's the main point? In light of that reality, what Paul is saying makes perfect sense. We're going to consider that right now. Remember that Paul has been arguing throughout this letter from a redemptive historical perspective, right? He's had us consider redemptive history. God's covenant of redemption that on the one hand was inaugurated in the garden, Genesis 3.15, where God promised to send the one who would crush the head of the serpent, right? So that started it in one sense. And then from then on, God has been unfolding his covenant of redemption. He's unfolded it through space and time. There are other covenants that would fall underneath the umbrella of the covenant of redemption, like the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant. We've talked about all that. That's not even the main point that I want to make today. We've been considering these realities about how God's promises and the law, the giving of the law, and the coming of Jesus fit. How do they fit into that covenant of redemption? This is massively important. For your understanding and mind of scripture. Wholesale. And so that million dollar question. What is the Bible about? If you had to answer that question. How would you answer it? I've offered this before. And I'm I'm still going to stick with this. And then I'm going to give you a shorter answer. If you were to ask me what is the Bible about. I would say this. It is about God's plan of redemption. Accomplished through Jesus. Applied by the Holy Spirit. All to the praise of the glory of God. The Bible is about God's plan of redemption. Accomplished through Jesus. Applied by the Holy Spirit. All to the praise of the glory of God. Or to put it in a shorter way. If we really want to. Especially for Paul's purposes here. If we really want to kind of boil that down. The Bible is about redemption. And it is about how Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And so if that's true, if that's true, that the Bible is about redemption, and the Bible, whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus and him coming to save his people from their sins, then what in the world are we doing in arguing about law-keeping and circumcision and days and feasts and traditions and whatever, right? So track with me. To argue about those things, to argue about whether those things are necessary from Paul's perspective, from a biblical perspective, is craziness. Why? It's because those things, the law, as great as it is, the feasts, the traditions, circumcision, those things were never the point. Those things were never the point of God's revelation. They were pointers to the point. And His name is Jesus. They were pointers to the point. That is namely God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ. Friends, I'm serious about this. I said this to my wife again this morning. If, you, if we come to Scripture with that kind of framework in mind and with those lenses on, you can pick up this massive book, open it to any page, and start reading it and make sense of it. And what I mean by that, I'm going to unpack that more in just a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I don't want to leave the circumcision issue just yet. Just talked about like. Circumcision, the law, traditions, feasts, etc., they were never the point. Let's take circumcision, for example, the issue at hand that's named in our passage. How do we think about circumcision? The issue that Paul is addressing specifically here is this question of, was circumcision ever required for righteousness? Was circumcision ever required, high level, for righteousness? Was it ever part of what justified people before God? The answer is, like, with an exclamation point, or like eight of them behind it, is no. 
It never was. Paul made that point explicitly as he considered, considered excuse me, Abraham. Circumcision, as we've thought about from chapter 3 of Galatians, was about God marking off his people. Right? He had chosen, by grace, had chosen Israel out of all of the peoples of the world. In spite of the fact that they were smaller than all the other nations, Deuteronomy 7. He chose them. He loved them because he loved them. And then he would mark them out with circumcision. He gave them an outward sign to make that adoption, that election reality visible. And so in that sense, circumcision was an outward sign of grace. It was an outward sign, a symbol, so to speak, of God's grace. And then now in the new covenant, as we considered again from Galatians 3, God is causing his people to be born again by his Holy Spirit. And so that is how he is now marking his people off from the world. God's people are marked off from the world by the new birth in the new covenant. And he also gave us a sign that would be a representation outwardly, visibly of that internal reality. It's called baptism. So now when people receive that new covenant reality called the new birth and are marked off from the rest of the people of the world, we are then baptized as an outward sign of that inward reality. So in that sense, baptism and circumcision are analogous. And remember Abraham. Remember Abraham, the man to whom circumcision was given. He was justified. He was counted righteous by faith. In Genesis chapter 15, we learn that he was counted righteous by believing God's promises. And then in chapter 17 of Genesis, we understand that God made a covenant with him and gave him circumcision. And last time I checked, 15 came before 17. Right? The justification happened before the circumcision was given. It matters. So friends, kind of back to that conversation about Scripture. When we read the Bible as it was intended to be understood by God, namely, when we read it as a story about His plan of redemption through His Son, then we can start putting things in their proper place. The problem is we tend not to read the Bible that way. We tend to read the Bible in a lot of ways. One of my favorite preachers of our lifetime named Sinclair Ferguson used to say something like this, that we tend to read the Bible like a Where's Waldo book and We're Waldo. Right? We tend to look for ourselves in the Bible all the time. We tend to make it very much about us. Even in a law-keeping way, like what's required of me? We make it about us. Rather than making it about God and his plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus, applied by the Spirit for his glory. So when we ask the question, if we come to any passage in the scripture, where does this fit? Where does this fit in God's plan of redemption? We will save ourselves from a thousand errors. Rather than coming to a text of scripture and looking at it in isolation, in a vacuum, like I don't know what to make of this stuff, we read it in light of the big story. And we ask, okay, well, where does it fit in there? And we can begin to make sense of the entire scripture. And also, friends, when we read the Bible this way, from this redemptive historical perspective, it keeps us from principalizing the Bible. It keeps us from just turning the Bible into this like handbook for like spiritual, emotional, and mental health with principles 1 through 417. Right? If we just follow these, then life will go this way. It keeps us from doing nonsense like that. Is the Bible helpful? Absolutely. It's the only thing that's helpful, actually, ultimately, eternally. But it is not a book of principles, primarily. It is a story of redemption. It is a story of God's work. If we read the Bible this way, too, friends, it keeps us from moralizing the Bible. It keeps us from moralizing, especially, the saints in the Old Testament. So... This is how you end up getting 32-part sermons on the life of Elijah or whatever. We will never do that here. You, this, we will not be preaching a sermon series on the life of David. Because David exists in the Bible because he's a sinner in need of Christ and he exists to get us to him. He would be the first person to say that. He's a pointer to the kind of king that Jesus would be. Right? David, like Paul, would sit here amongst us today and say... I am the chief of sinners in desperate need of God's mercy. What are you people doing in holding me up as an example to follow? 
I'm here to get you to the one you trust in. I'm here to get you to the one you are to follow. So, friends, on the one hand, it would be absolute insanity for us not to read the Bible this way. Right, so, what's the first question when you go pick up a book at the bookstore, if people even do that anymore? I guess we buy them on Amazon or whatever we do. And, I mean, maybe there's some dinosaurs in the room who actually still read hard copies. I'm one of them. But if you pick up a book, or if you're holding your you know, iPad or whatever it is, your Kindle thing, whatever you got, I don't even have that. I don't know what that is. So whatever you read the books on. Whenever you're holding that, what's the first question you ask about a, a book? What's it about? Right? What's it about? And you're going to read that book in light of that. It's insane that we wouldn't do that with Scripture. And that's what Paul is helping us to do in this letter to the Galatians, is to read Scripture and understand Scripture that way. Understand the law and circumcision and the role that God always meant for them to play. Realize that the plan of redemption is unfolding and Jesus has come and we are saved by faith in Him, apart from any work of the law. Because everything that was in Scripture prior to Christ was there to get us to Him. So this helps us, friends, when it comes to understanding the law, as we've considered several times throughout this series. The law is good. It's wonderful. It's wise. It's perfect. It is a revelation of God's character, and it's a revelation of what is righteous and good. But it was never intended by God to save anybody. The law serves to show us our sin and point us to the Savior, first use. The law serves to restrain human evil, second use. And the law serves as our guide, third use. It tells us what pleases God. The law was never meant to save. And so it's massive, in order to understand Paul's argument in Galatians 5, 2 and 3, that we are justified apart from the law by faith in Christ, we have to understand the purposes for which the law was given in the first place. And in order to do that, you need to read your Bible this way. So that's sort of reason number one. That's getting underneath Paul's theology. First way is he is talking this way because of the point of the Bible. It was always about Christ. That's what he's saying. Second, let's pan out again. Paul, why are you talking this way, man? What's behind your theology? What's underneath your theology? Reason number two or exhibit number two, whatever, heading two, is the impossibility of keeping the law. The impossibility of keeping the law. That's in Paul's mind. You can see that. That's implied absolutely by verse 3. That if you accept circumcision or any work of the law, you're obligated to keep the whole thing. Implication, you can't do that. And you know darn well you can't do that. You know before God, you know that you're guilty. You know you're a lawbreaker. That, that verse is meant to just absolutely say, oh, well then I guess I best not accept circumcision because I know that I can't stand on my own merit. So Paul has been crystal clear about the fact that no one is justified by works of the law. And part of that is because no one can do it. Not only was the plan always for people to be saved through faith in Christ, but it's flat out impossible for anybody to keep the law and be justified by doing that. Because perfect. Righteousness is what's required by the law. Keeping the whole law at the heart level and the thought level and the external level is necessary if we are going to be justified by it. We've talked about this before and I won't labor it right now, but when you think to the most famous sermon ever preached, Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when the question of the law comes up, Jesus says very clearly that I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, meaning to fulfill it in the place of his people. And then he, he teaches the law. He unpacks the law the way that it always should have been taught, but unfortunately was not. In Christ's day, the law was not taught the way that it should have been taught. And so when Christ teaches it, what does he do? He applies the law not just to your external behavior, not just to that level. He gets underneath that. To the mind level, the thought level, the heart level, the motivation level, to where you're listening to that and it's like, I'm done. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, 
that anyone who has looked at a woman lustfully or flipped that, a woman who's looked at a man with lust in his or her heart is guilty of breaking the law. It's a heart issue. You might not have slept with someone who isn't your spouse, but you have lusted after someone who isn't your spouse. You're guilty, and so am I. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you that if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you are guilty of breaking the law. You might not have killed anyone, but I trust everyone in this room this week has been angry with someone. You're a lawbreaker, and so am I. We break it at the heart level, the motivation level, the thought level, and in action. The only way that we would ever kid ourselves into thinking that we could keep the law adequately is if we so relativize it that we make it doable. Like we just kind of dumb it down. We turn it into this kind of like sort of halfway standard that we feel like we can keep. And we fool ourselves into thinking we can do that. But if we take the law on its terms, exposited the right way like Jesus does, no way. Nobody's measuring up. So it is true. It is true to say, Jesus says this repeatedly in the Gospels. It is true to look at someone and say, if you do blank, you will live forever. If you do blank, you'll live eternally. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you keep the commandments like all of them, if you sell everything you own, give it to the poor and follow me, you fill in the blank with me, right? If you do these things, you will live. And yes, that's true. If you do those things with the right motives and the right heart posture perfectly all the time, you will have eternal life. The problem is that there's nobody standing in that line except one. Jesus is the only one who can stand in that line and say, I've done that. And so, under the law, when that question is asked, and this again is how Jesus is dealing with his Jewish audience of his day. This is why when Jesus speaks, we hear things and it's like, that sounds like law to me. Because it is law that he's giving them. Right? They ask, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And he gives it back to them. Essentially, do everything perfectly. And then the answer, it's like, well, okay, I guess I'm smoked because I can't do that. If we're going to live eternally, it must be through Jesus fulfilling the law in our place because none of us could ever do it. And that is underneath and behind Paul's theology. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes this way because Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, knows that no one can keep the law. All right, so that's the second sort of zoom out what's behind Paul's theology. Third thing, third heading, what's behind Paul's theology. This is my favorite one. Number three, it's because of what Jesus has done. What's behind Paul's theology, what's underneath it? Simply what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. So what did Jesus do? It's a good question. First, we won't labor this one because we've already been thinking about it. He was born under the law, Galatians 4. 4. He was born under the law in order to redeem those who are born under the law. He was born under the law in part so that he could, in our place, fulfill it. So that he could, in our place, keep it perfectly. Because the law is good, and it's wise, and it's awesome. And because God never planned to save sinners through sinners keeping the law, he sent his son, who would perfectly keep the law in the place of sinners. So praise God that by faith, Jesus as your representative has fulfilled and kept the law perfectly. That's one thing he did. Second thing he did, also in being born under the law, it means that he could in our place take the penalty that the law requires for us. So he took our guilt, he took our law breaking, he took our shame, our iniquity, all of our sin. He took it on himself and paid for it in full, right? It's like we sung earlier. What a wonderful image. I mean, 
the image of the fact like that the dust that formed the crowd is now receiving the blood of Christ as it drips from his body. But then beyond that, the earth is shaking and the veil in the temple that separated man from God is split in two. And he stood, Jesus did, before the wrath of God and shielded sinners with his blood. He took that. We very much take refuge in him. Through faith, he receives the wrath and the penalty that we deserve. And this is necessary, friends, because God is good. It's because God is good that he judges sinners. We understand that. To us, it seems like it's because, well, God's angry. He's mean or something. That's why he judges people. No, he judges people because he's good. It's because he is just. It's because he will by no means clear the guilty. So then you, you say, okay... But wait a minute, if, if I have iniquity and transgression and sin, then I'm really guilty, and we all are, so then how does that work? It works this way, that someone took your punishment for you, someone took my punishment for me, and by faith, God the just is satisfied in that Jesus, the righteous one, died for a sinner like you and like me. He took the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, and paid it. Really, the transaction is done. And therefore, you stand before God forgiven. Through Christ, 1 John 1, 9, our sins are forgiven and we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah chapter 1. And if you have a a hard time. I know that sometimes we do. When we think about the fact that we inherit Adam's guilt, that's hard, right? If you have a hard time with that, though, on the flip side of that equation, we ought to have a, a hard time with thinking that we are counted with Christ's righteousness simply by faith. We struggle with being imputed, being credited with Adam's sin, but that's scandalous that we would be credited with the righteousness of Christ. It's amazing mercy that God makes that great exchange through faith in His Son. So that's something else that Jesus accomplished for you. He took your sin, you get His righteousness. That's a pretty amazing deal. Another thing that Christ did, He rose again from the dead. He took His life up again. So He was put in the ground on a Friday afternoon. This happened in history, in time and space. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. He was put in the ground on Friday afternoon, and his body was there Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night. And then early on Sunday morning, he got up. And it happened in time and space. In getting up from the dead, Jesus defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. The final enemy, death, has been triumphed over. The dominion of sin has been broken and the strong man, Satan, has been bound. That all happened when Christ got up from the grave. And then he stayed on earth for a period of days and was seen by hundreds of people. But then after that, he ascended to heaven. This is the next thing that he did. He ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's there now. He reigns now. So this matters. Like, Paul, why are you saying that it's completely by faith in Christ? It's because of everything that Jesus has done. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's keeping us. We're going to sing here later that nothing will ever pluck us from his hands because he has told us that that's true. That he keeps his own. That he will not lose any of those that the Father has given to him. Your assurance and mine are grounded in His ability to keep you, not in any ability of our own. And as Christ sits reigning, He prays. Prays. He prays for you. And he prays for me. He prays that we would be kept in the Father's holy name. He prays that we would have His joy fulfilled in us. He prays that we would be kept from the evil one. He prays that we would be sanctified in the Word of God. He prays that we would have great unity so the world would know that the Father sent Him and that the Father loves Him. He prays that we would be with Him where He is. 
to behold his glory that his father gave him before the foundation of the world. He prays that the love the father has for him would be in us and that he would be in us. And he prays that we might be saved to the uttermost. Praise God. Jesus prays for us. And there will come a day finally when he will return to judge the nations, judge the world. And we will stand before the judge knowing that it is the judge who died for us. Knowing that it is the judge who fulfilled perfect righteousness for us. Whatever the final judgment will look like for Christians, it is nothing to fear because of Christ. Those things, and that's not an exhaustive list, but those things are what Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. And that's why Paul can say, you are saved completely by what Christ has done, by faith in him, apart from any work that you could ever do, because Christ is sufficient. His work is sufficient. The gospel, after all, is about what God has done through his son so that we might be with him forever. So how sad and ridiculous is it that we would turn the gospel into something that we must contribute to? Far from honoring Jesus, that kind of teaching that we need to add something to what he has done, dishonors Christ very much. We talk sometimes as though we feel like Christ has done most of it or he built the salvation machine, but then we've got to get in it and drive the thing. No way. Christ saves sinners. He has accomplished redemption and it's over and there's nothing to be added to it. So then friends, as we kind of land this plane, as we've thought about those kind of three great biblical theological truths, the point of Scripture being about God's plan of redemption through Christ. The fact that no one could ever keep the law except Christ. And the fact that Jesus has accomplished perfectly the work of redemption. It's very clear that what Paul is saying is not only right, it's just clearly reasonable. It makes perfect sense with the rest of Scripture. The witness is consistent. We are saved completely. By faith in Christ, apart from any work that we could ever do. That is at the heart of the gospel. And so, if we're preaching that gospel rightly, if we're preaching that gospel rightly, this is how I want us to kind of land the plane here, then we better actually have people in this church asking the question, uh, this means we can sin, right? Like, if we're preaching the gospel that way, it ought to beg the question, so, bro, you're saying that, that it, we can just sin, right? Because it doesn't matter what we're doing. Because I actually, I fear that if that tension, at least, is not in your minds, if you're not having your mind blown by the reality of the gospel, I fear we're not preaching the gospel. If we don't have people wrestling with that question, I actually am going to be quite concerned. Because I'm going to be afraid that we're preaching some hybrid salvation. We're preaching some kind of synthesis of law and gospel. And so, when we get that question, by the way, I, I love to get that question because it demonstrates to me that, that people's minds and hearts are just being wrecked by the truth of the gospel. It's like, this you got to be kidding, man. Like, this is amazing news to which we say, yeah, it is. It is. But when we get that question, so hey man, this means we can sin, right? We, along with the Apostle Paul, Romans 6.1, by no means can you sin. No way. And that, friends, is when we get to talk to people and teach people and preach and herald this wonderful thing called union with Christ through faith. We get to talk to people about the fact that they have been united to the Lord Jesus by faith and have been raised to walk in newness of life in Him. We get to talk to people about the fact that their life will not be the same as what it used to be because they have been born again supernaturally by the Spirit of God as they have beheld the Son of God. So, if you want something to do, 
Right? So sometimes that's, that's kind of a, a question that we bring to sermon time. It's like, hey, give me, give me something to do. Give me some handles, man. I'm happy to give you some. So these are a couple, two or three things that you can do from a, a text like Galatians 5, 2, and 3. Here we go. One, meditate on Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. You think that doesn't take effort? It does. Meditate on Christ, on what he has done. Run these things through your mind that we've just been considering. His perfect life, his atoning death, his triumphant resurrection, his even possibly more triumphant ascension to heaven and the fact that he reigns and rules and prays for you and that he's coming back. Meditate on Christ, the fact that you've been united to him and that you died with him in one sense. You died in him to the law. We talked about that weeks ago and that you have now been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Contemplate those realities. Next, number two, consider what it means to be in Christ. Consider what it means to be in Jesus. That's the language that's used in Scripture more often than any in the New Testament to describe believers in Christ. Consider the fact that your identity, who you are, your DNA is now in Jesus. Are you a sinner? Yes. Are you a struggler? Yes. But that no longer defines you. The fact that you are in Christ is the defining banner over your life now. Contemplate that reality. Contemplate the fact that you have taken refuge in him. That he has shielded you from the wrath of God. And that you stand in him. You stand on his righteousness, not yours. Contemplate those things. Contemplate the fact that he is your representative. He took your punishment. He provided your righteousness. And then thirdly, wrestle with what it means to abide in Christ. One of the other pastors, the other pastor of our church right now, Ron, his favorite chapter in the Bible, we all know, John 15. Anybody who spent much time around Ron will, will know that about him. Some of you are newer and you won't know that about Ron, but there you go. Ron loves John 15, abiding in Christ. Wrestle with what that means. Wrestle with what it means to abide in Christ. It would mean to trust him completely. To rest and rely upon him completely and only. To trust in his finished work. To rely upon him as the source of your living. To rely upon him as the source of your working and your doing because his spirit is in you now. You will do nothing good apart from him. He says that. Contemplate what that means. I'm going to trust and I'm going to rest in the Lord Jesus. And I know that his spirit is at work in me, causing me to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then, of course, friends, beyond that, this is kind of like a postscript. Of course, beyond that, there are plenty of other great things that we can and should do. The Bible is full of them. We can and should gather regularly as a church like this. Weekly, we do this to experience the realities of God's word as it's proclaimed over us, and we sit together, myself included, underneath it. As we experience these sacramental realities like the Lord's table, and on the Sundays when we would do a baptism afterwards, after the service, we experience those realities. We come to this table every week together. We commune together, right? That's what that word means. We come as a body, testifying to one another that Jesus has died and was raised and is coming back and that we're good with God now because of this and what it represents and then we come together weekly like this to experience people of God realities we weren't meant to live the Christian life alone so we do it in community like this we bear one another's burdens and sorrows we rejoice with each other we pray for each other we encourage one another we stir one another up to love and good works we do this those are things we should do. We meditate on the Word of God. We pray. Prayer is just an outflowing, an outworking of a life of faith. And then we love people. That's not a bad thing to have in your mind all the time. I'm going to set out to love 
especially my brothers and sisters, but I'm going to love my neighbor wholesale. Those are things to do. And we do these things, as we've considered so many times, out of love and out of joy and out of gratitude to God. We do them in faith. And so it's pretty cool, just kind of final thought for us. The Bible is very clear that there are things that we must do, but we don't do them. It's replete with stuff that we are to do and we fail to do them. But what's amazing, maybe even more so about Scripture, is that God has revealed to us here that Jesus has done all of those things in our place. And in doing that, he then sets us free to go about doing those things imperfectly, but really. We have been set free by Christ unto righteousness. It's pretty cool. Praise be to God for that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. You revealed yourself and your plan of redemption to us when you did not have to. We who sit here today in Christ, thank you for saving us. We know that that's not something that we did, but it's something that you have done. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves as individuals and as a church that you would continue to drive these great gospel truths into our hearts. That we would know that we know that we know that we stand before you in Christ and in Christ alone. That we would rejoice in that all the more. And that we would live from that joy and from that gratitude. We would live lives then of obedience and love and holiness. So we pray, God, that you would do that work in us. Accomplish it by your spirit as we abide in and rest in and trust in your son. We pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.